With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. And then it was just one bad thing after another. I think like then my, my car died. We would either sleep in the car or if it was like too cold or we couldn't find a good area, uh, we would get a Motel 6. Well, it, it kind of came to a head at the at the end of the summer where I was like, am I going to go back to school or am I going to you know, give up my degree to keep working on this? And it was just a question of numbers. Like, we don't have any more money. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Rob Reinhardt, the 27-year-old founder of Soylent, an innovative food replacement startup that has rocked the world of consumer packaged goods. Soon after the interview started, I noticed that Rob had an incredibly intentional way of speaking. It seems like each word was meticulously chosen to most effectively communicate his internal dialogue. I think this intentionality directly contradicts with the scrappy break it, then fix it later mantra that saturates the mentality of many Silicon Valley startups. With an innate talent for creating and innovating, Rob has led Soylent to insane success, with a young company having raised over $75 million. A natural-born inventor and trained engineer, Rob is redefining how the world views nutrition and food. But in order to understand how Rob came to the conclusion that food needs to be reinvented, we have to understand what his first impression of food was. To do that, we have to go back to a suburb of Virginia, where Rob developed an interesting relationship with food. I loved processed food. I loved hot dogs and and frozen burgers and... I also was very much a creature of habit in my eating routine. I think I went an entire summer on nothing but peanut butter sandwiches. I think my mom would offer me something else, and I would just say, well, why? We have the peanut butter sandwich. What an amazing invention. I would help my mom in the kitchen. I actually kind of liked helping her cook, and I would like to mark up her cookbook. And, you know, I, I always like to tinker and, and build things, and it seemed like a very natural extension to me. I would like to take apart a clock radio and put it back together, and then I would put some flour and sugar and eggs together and make cookies. You know, I just always liked making things, and, and food was a very natural extension of that. While he had an affinity for the sugar-loaded, sodium-rich glory that is processed foods, he also developed a deep appreciation for fresh produce and the art of cultivating your own crop. This, along with a few other life lessons, he learned from his father. My dad was raised on a farm in Mississippi, and he showed me how to grow tomatoes. And that was always also a really fascinating experience, you know, that idea of it just came out of the ground, and then I ate it. It seemed weird because, you know, most people, they just, you know, food comes from a shelf, right? Or it comes from a restaurant or it comes from this, you know, magical white polystyrene container. Um, I think a lot of people really may not have had the experience of, like, growing something and taking it off the vine or out of the ground and eating it. The whole process and, and the tools we used, like, I, I remember you'd have to stake the tomato. And I was like, oh, the tomato plant naturally will not do very well. You need human intervention. You need this caretaker and you need some form of technology, even if it was really basic. I think like fresh food is really high quality and I could see us, you know, using technology to find ways to get more people fresh food. That's one thing that I I would really like. And also this idea of independence. You know, I really like the idea that I know how to grow 
tomatoes. And so even if I buy most of them, I know how they're grown. But this idea that I could make something for myself. As, as a boy, I used to love reading like Thoreau and Emerson and that like philosophy of self-reliance. Being a capable person and, you know, having a lot of skills and being able to provide your own basic needs. You know, I, I think there's something really valuable there. And I think it gives you a good perspective on life and makes you a more responsible citizen. While most American children only see one side of the food industry, the processed side, Rob was exposed to two perspectives. He had the packaged peanut butter snacks juxtaposed with the holistic grow-it-yourself fruits and veggies. This genuine and direct farm-to-table feel, completely cutting out the middleman, taught him a thing or two about independence and growth. I grew up in a large family, and I was the only boy, so I had four sisters. And so maybe I did feel a little bit of an outsider. Maybe I did feel a little independent. I was also kind of like... You know, a little bit of nerdy, shy, introverted type in school. And, you know, I love my books and, like, didn't get invited to the best parties, and which was fine with me <laughs> and and all that. And so, you know, maybe I did feel like a little bit of a outsider, and I framed that as being independent. But it didn't really bother me. You know, I felt like I had what I wanted, which was, you know, liked hanging out with my dad and, and really liked my books and really liked running chemistry experiments and, and building electronics and taking stuff apart. Raised in a devout Christian household within a deeply Christian community, religion was a crucial part of Rob's childhood. And it wasn't until he started to get into science that he began to spark this sense of curiosity that's now integral to his personality. And my father was very, very faithful, very strong man of God, woke up at 5 a.m. every morning and prayed and read his Bible. And uh, we would have family church every Sunday. And I was really into it, honestly. I thought it was cool. You know, I thought this idea of, like, everyone would get together and talk about how to be a better person, like, that's probably a pretty good idea. And, you know, a lot of my closest friends I, like, met in the church or we hung out in the church and, like, I had a really good peer group and we'd go on trips together. A lot of the original scientists were very devout. I think originally there wasn't really a separation between church and science. Philosophy was a study of God and nature, and God, of course, created nature, and so it was very closely entwined, and that's kind of how I saw it. You know, I really felt this desire to understand the natural world, and I saw that as my route to understanding God better. As I got older, though, some of the doctrines did seem at odds. You know, for example, I, I went to school where it, in science class we learned that the universe was 8,000 years old and that evolution was just a theory. So, you know, I wanted to be a good student, but then I would read a lot on my own and I would say, you know, I, I don't really know about this. I was afraid of coming to this odds with um, faith and science. They seemed intrinsically at odds. You know, faith seemed like something that you would accept without evidence. And science is all about evidence. And when I looked at the evidence, a lot of things seemed at odds with, you know, things that I were being taught. I was in a very difficult intellectual and philosophical position. Going against the grain, especially at a very young age, can be extremely difficult and emotionally taxing. I think we need to take a second to reflect on what Rob was dealing with. Rob had been indoctrinated into a rigid set of values and ideas from a very young age. Every Sunday, these beliefs were reinforced and strengthened through a series of mantras, parables, and sermons. His family, community, and entire social structure revolved around Christianity. But this state of conflict ultimately led him to a choice that would forever cement his independence and quest towards scientific truth. I was at a Christian school, and we had to write this senior thesis, you know, kind of capping out what the ideas we were interested in in school, and mine was about science and religion. 
And I thought, all right, I'm going to really, with a totally open mind, dive into everything. Like, like, did David really exist? Did Jesus really exist? Was there a real Garden of Eden? You know, was there really a flood? And also, what are some of the, you know, societal implications of, of religion? And, you know, I, I had full confidence that I was going to come out of it saying, like, oh, I found evidence that the creation story is true. And I found evidence that Jesus did everything he said he did. And then when I really looked at the evidence, I concluded at the time that that wasn't really the case. And I wrote my senior thesis about this, that I think the universe is older than you're telling me, and I think that evolution is real. And so I kind of picked a side, and I picked the side that my school did not want me to pick. And it was very upsetting to a lot of people. They failed me, and they said that I had to rewrite it, and that they were going to prevent me from going to college. I sat down with each professor one by one and said I was standing my ground, and I thought that this was the truth. We debated for hours and hours. And, you know, a lot of them at the end of the day, they just get exhausted and just be like, you know what, what this is really about is love. They, a lot of them came down to the end of it. It's like, you know what, maybe I don't understand a lot of this science, but I do understand that God has had a positive effect in my life in some way, or it's brought more love into my life. Or a lot of people had these anecdotes. Like I had, um, you know, this, I went through a very dark period and God helped me out of that or something. And, and people were like, you know, that's all the evidence that I need. Were you initially disappointed? It seems like you had intentions that were mo- very much in line with what your school wanted and it then all the evidence pointed to the contrary was there was there like a thought that you had or like damn like i wish i wish i wasn't finding all this evidence yeah but i mean i had i also felt this responsibility to kind of stick to the truth i mean i felt like that's what a lot of there were controversial christians in society like like martin luther you know he went up against the catholic church and in Galileo, you know, and I cited these people in my paper, you know, they stuck to the truth and I wanted to be like them. And I felt like that's what they had trained me to do. And now that I actually did it, they didn't like me. And I mean, it went deep. Like a lot of my friends like stopped talking to me or if they did talk to me, all they talked about were like, you can need to come back to the church or something. I mean, it was a whole system. This moment of reflection taught Rob to stand his ground. Something that we have seen throughout our interviews with entrepreneurs is ideological commitment, especially in the face of societal and social pressure. And it is in this moment where Rob defined himself as a visionary and the seeds of Rob's entrepreneurial lifestyle began to sprout. This independent thought and expansive vision at a young age gave Rob the confidence to pursue whatever he was most interested in. That pursuit began with computers. I just always felt it. I always felt this desire to like look inside something and like see how it works and, and take it apart. I just always had that. But I, I don't think I ever really saw it as, as as like a business. I just liked I just liked doing things. Maybe it's part of that independence too. So the first company I started arguably was just like washing cars in the neighborhood with, with my neighbor. And for us it was just like something fun to do during the summertime. But people were like, I'm gonna pay you. Like you save me. I don't have to go to the car wash like miles away because we live in the suburbs. And, you know, with that money, I could buy, like, more radio parts and tools and things that I really wanted. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And once I got a little older, I had friends that were, like, working for a McDonald's for, like, $5 an hour and didn't, didn't like it very much. And it just seemed like, you know, most of the money that I pay for at McDonald's does not go to that person selling me the burger. But if I, like, do my own thing, it seems more efficient. More of that money is going to, to me, and then I can use that for other things that I want to do. Because also, like, I really just wanted to go home and build computers. 
but people were saying that's weird that's nerdy like who does that you know you should go to the football practice like everybody else and i'm like i'm just here sweating and like hitting people i that's you know what i really want to do and it was probably a better use of my time in the long run is to build these computers and sell them and so i'm just going to do that when did you have like your first moments i guess of positive reinforcement or like success with that um computer business or computer building business i guess i was six i was probably 15 when i sold my first one like a family friend you know needed one and like knew that i was kind of like good with computers and electronics and stuff and so they're like all right i'll take a chance and i'll buy one of your computers and it worked and then uh or i think i also at the same time i had a business like servicing them you know this is oh this is great because it was in the days of like windows me and windows 95 and windows was always breaking so I, I had a huge market, <laughs> plenty of oh, like, you know, older people in the neighborhood that were struggling with their computers and word just got out. This, this kid will come over on his bicycle and fix your computer for 20 bucks an hour. And I was able to, to like move out and get my own place when I was 17. 17. So you're yeah. still in high school? Yeah. I have my own apartment in downtown Atlanta. It was awesome. Why, why did you move out so like so early? I guess I wanted my independence. As we can see, Rob consistently strives to defy expectations. With business acumen and intelligence, Rob was able to jumpstart his small business and experience more independence than any of his peers. But I think Rob still felt restricted. Yeah, he was successful, but he also was alone in the success. He didn't have the support needed to accelerate everything he was doing. That was until Georgia Tech. was such a breath of fresh air like I felt like such an outsider at this Christian school and I was like trying to stand up for truth and science and like just build computers and people wanted me to like take the party line on like all the Christian science and like play the on the football team and then finally get to Georgia Tech and they're like I build computers too really <laughs> there's an author that was a very influential at the time too Richard Dawkins he, he wrote a lot about atheism and like this criticism of Christianity. I went to campus and I saw people like carrying the same book that had been so influential to me. And then, you know, they showed me this lab with like, oh my God, all the tools I could have ever wanted. And like these professors are like inventing new signal processing techniques. And I'm so glad that I kind of stuck it out because I eventually did find like uh, what I felt was a peer group. And I, you know, really thrived on campus and loved being part of all these, all these groups. Like I ended up being the president of my electrical engineering professional society and it was so great to be like I think that guy's work is really interesting what did it what did you do with all those resources be like because like I mean you had access to all the right people you had access to all of like the materials that you needed and you already had this entrepreneurial like kind of vision so what did you do when it all came together oh I started building things I would just take stuff out of the trash and build things I also had a, my computer business evolved into a like web programming business and so I, I started doing a lot of web programming and like taught myself PHP and Python and in the dark days of like Internet Explorer 6, like it was <laughs> it was it was hard and had a great business that too. And I liked that because I could do that from anywhere. And so I was, you know, writing tons of, of software and taking classes on, on AI and like really into like computer vision. And I loved building robots. And I then I got really into um, radios. I thought radios were so cool that it, it, it was like magic, like something would, you, you would put something together and it would affect something with no visual line of sight. You know, it would, it would just happen. It's like these two remote devices are, are connected. And, I, you know, so I was building these radios and then at some point it hit me like, oh, cell phones are just radios. And, you know, these cell towers, it's just radios. It's a lot like what I'm building now. And, you know, I'd always been entrepreneurial and I, and I thought about, you know, I don't really want to go work for, for like a big company. So at, at the time it was, everyone wanted to work for like 
a big defense contractor. You know, like, oh, I really want that job security. I want to work for this big company. I want to work for GE. It seemed like on the West Coast, the schools were more about fostering founders and, and entrepreneurs. And at the time, I started reading, you know, Hacker News and, and Paul Graham's blog. And I really liked his philosophy around building a business. Like, you want something that, you know, people want. It's just that simple. And you want to take, you know, something that you're really interested in intellectually and then, you know, solve your own problem. And then chances are other people have that problem and you can turn that in, into a company. College had shown Rob that there exists a dedicated community of intellectuals that share his values and ideas. With this group, he was constantly pushed and motivated to pursue more ambitious projects. These projects eventually led to a company called Athena. So the first company I did, and, and I had a, a co-founder that was just my fraternity brother, and so we started this company called Athena, uh, which is the goddess of wisdom. Um, and so we were like, we got, these textbooks are so expensive, and and in books overall, I was like a voracious reader, and I was like spending so much of, of my money on, on books, and I was like, it would be so great if I could just, you know, read all the books I wanted to online, and you would pay monthly, like a Netflix thing. And we were like, oh, we hit it, like no one else has ever thought of this, we were such geniuses, literally drove went into my 94 buick century and drove across country to california i think we got like ten thousand dollars from uh, my co-founder's uncle and uh that was our seed capital and we stretched that for like nine months you know a lot of that went towards the domain we, we i don't know why we did that we spent all this we spent like thousands of dollars on athena.com which i still have <laughs> that's a good domain it's a good it's with an i we couldn't get athena with an e it's athena with an i which i had to explain to everybody <laughs> but we got the dot com and i was like we're official we have a dot com and so we get introduced also through his uncle to like he's like oh this guy's an investor and we go into his office and he's like the real estate investor and he's like i have no idea what you guys are talking about get out of my office <laughs> and we were like okay we'll keep trying <laughs> How did that first rejection feel? We just walked outside and we kind of looked at each other and we were like, that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> and then it was just one bad thing after another. I think like then my, my car died. We would either sleep in the car or if it was like too cold or we couldn't find a good area, uh, we would get a Motel 6. And then we kind of caved and then like lived in a Motel 6 for like a month. And then we finally budgeted and got like a $600 a month lease in, in Pacifica in like this small apartment. We didn't have any money for furniture. So I, I had a sleeping bag and I, I slept on the floor and had my monitor on the floor and I would um, eventually I think we, we, we saved up for like a folding table from Home Depot and a folding chair and it was like it was like getting a new corporate campus. <laughs> it was like awesome. Like oh my god I have a table, like a desk. This is great. We, we eventually got other meetings. Uh, my friend Matt, he was like on the phone all day, like pitching and trying to get deals with publishers and trying to get meetings with VCs. And I'm just like coding with my headphones in. The publishers just, what a brick wall. I mean, we thought we just, oh, we're going to expand your business. We're going to sign a licensing deal with a publisher. No problem. These are like 200-year-old companies. No way. Like McGraw-Hill, <laughs> so to sign a deal with Athena, like startup, like no way. <laughs> Rob went from making $50 a day programming in his own apartment to scraping by on savings and eating ramen. To me, this transition felt pretty rough. So I was curious if Rob felt the same way. I mean, I, I still saw it as a step forward in my life. You know, my, my hourly programming business probably wasn't going to change the world. And it probably wasn't going to scale to be that big. And I felt like, wow, this is like a real startup. 
I don't really know what either of those words really mean, but it felt to me like this is a real startup. And that was a big step forward from being like a, a consultant or like a contractor, basically. So even though it was less comfortable, it felt like I was on the right path. And I just, I just felt like it's not very comfortable right now, but I just knew if I stay on this path long enough, I'm going to figure something out. So at what point did you realize that this business wouldn't work out? Well, it, it kind of came to a head at the, at the end of the summer where I was like, am I going to go back to school or I'm going to you know, give up my degree to keep working on this? And it was just a question of numbers. Like, we don't have any more money. Um, and I like have, I have enough money to like barely get me home and that's about it. And I guess I'll figure things out from there. And, you know, I think Matt, my co-founder, he wanted to keep trying and I'm, I'm like, look, I'm going to go back to school and I can, and I, I can work remotely and you can keep trying to raise money. And if you close some money, then, you know, we'll go and do it. But fact is like, we didn't close any publisher deals. Um, you know, I, I put the website up and like nobody signed up and, um, we haven't raised any money and, you know, maybe on to the next one. Creating Athena tested Rob's dedication to entrepreneurship. If he could work through the toughest parts of Athena, then he could work through anything. He came out of the business undeterred and excited for the next challenge. In that year, uh, I did think of a new idea. So I was, I was getting really into these radios. You know, it's really hard to make money in software anyway. So I was like, you know, why is everyone making stuff in software? Like, how much money do you spend on software? Like, not a lot. It's so like, you know, what I do spend money on are, is my like cell phone bill. And also, like, I think these networks are really inefficient. And I think there's a way to make them better with like uh, mesh networking. Like radios can send and receive. And so there's no reason that I thought, you know, your device couldn't also be the tower. And then that would make, you know, the network in the U.S. way more efficient and have way better coverage. And, um, you know, still had this like, you know, humanitarian angle, which was, like, oh, you know, you still have a bottom billion or like three billion people that are not connected to the internet and it puts them at a huge disadvantage. I thought, oh, with this wonderful mesh network, you could get all these people online. Um, and so I said, that's the idea. And he said, what's a mesh network? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, I, I was broke again. And I was like, all right, Matt, I need like $1,000 to buy this. Um, it's called a software-defined radio. And if, if you buy this for me, um, I can build a proof of concept and, and we're going to go pitch that to Y Combinator. And he's like, no way that's going to work, but I'll give you a thousand dollars. And I was like, it's all I needed. And so I bought the radio, bought the software defined radio. It's this kit. And then, then I, I did it, built the proof of concept and, and it worked. And then I was like, all right, we're going to apply to Y Combinator. You know, no way we're going to get in like all the way from, from Georgia, but I thought, oh, we're, we're going to go for it. And then I randomly I, th I thought it like wasn't really done. I thought maybe I'll pitch next season. And then like the night the applications were due, I was in the library late night at Georgia Tech. And I ran into this guy that I'd seen at a party the night before. And he was like, why common applications are due? Like, are you applying? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe. Do you want to apply? And he was like, let's apply right now. And he had this I idea called like, called like reverse logistics. Well, that's an interesting idea, but maybe we should pitch with mine. And so <laughs> I, I put my idea for the radios in instead. And we like selfie camera phone, like recorded our like pitch video in the library and submitted it at like 11:59 PM and applications closed at 12. And then a couple of days later we get this, I get this message. It's like, we, we want you to come to Palo Alto to pitch Paul Graham. And I was like, no way. How surprised were you? Because like you, you had done approaching people for investment for months and got nothing but notes. And then all of a sudden someone <laughs> gives you a chance. Yeah, take it. I mean, I, I changed it around. You know, I, I did, you know, sometimes I think, what if I like refuse to give up on that original idea? And so as much as I believe like never give up, I think you do sometimes have to make changes. 
but sometimes you need to refocus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes you need to pivot. <laughs> sometimes you need to pivot. I definitely pivoted. I even pivoted that business. So, um, so, so we, we, we fly out and I, and I have my, my little radio in my backpack. And so the four of us went and we, and we pitched and they asked a few questions and, and they were like, okay. And then we knew that like, if you get an email, it's a no. And if you get a call, it's a yes. And so we're like on Caltrain, just like on pins and needles. Like what's going to happen? I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do if they say no. We get an email and we're like, oh man, another rejection. And in the email says, what's your phone number? (laughs) 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 And um, then they call and we're like, we think it's a good idea. You're in. It was awesome. It was the best feeling ever. Rob had finally done it. He had finally tasted of the success he had voraciously pursued. Let's take a step back. All the trials and tribulations we talked about before, all of it, was before he graduated college. When he finally got his degree, Rob set out on another cross-country journey and set himself up in sunny California. If everybody had a the- yeah, landed in Palo Alto, and then we, we got this, like, you know, broken-down startup house and worked there all summer. And, you know, things seemed like they were going well, but, again, like the telecoms would be like we don't really want to partner we were like hey we can make your network better and they were like why would we want that and like we would go to like even the developing world telecoms would be like hey we can get you know more like poor people on your network and they're like why would we want that and you know that really struck me you know people a lot of people that have their businesses they just want to make money a lot of people don't want to be innovative a lot of people don't want to help people but you know there's a like a restructuring of the ideology that you went in with because like i think that i mean like it, it seems similar to you know, one of like your first realizations with like Christianity and, and science, like this is like, like almost like a conflict of like the idealism that you come in with thinking that everyone wants to improve, innovate and make the world better. But then realizing that, oh shit, the world's actually just run by money hungry people. But not everybody. And I feel like by sticking to my guns and my principles, I would eventually meet the people that were going to be helpful. Then, I mean, at this point we were getting, we were pitching like the big VCs and some big investors. And like, we even knew people that had like success in telecom. We learned to go after like, oh, someone had success in telecom. Now we're a telecom company. We're like, but like, are we a telecom company? Are we a consumer company? Are we like a um, nonprofit humanitarian company? And so that was another big lesson is like, you really, really need to focus on what you're doing. And so I really learned to try to focus and also to have a simple business plan. I remember at, at demo day, Ashton Kutcher was there and I go up to Ashton Kutcher and I'm like, Ashton, check it out. We're, we're building this next generation software defined radio mesh network for the internet of things that's going to help the developing world. And he's like, I have no idea what you just said. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, this, this is just too complicated. And other people would go, I was like, my cell phone works fine. Why are you building a whole new network? We don't really need that. Rob felt that there was success just beyond the horizon. They just needed someone to see the value in their company. But as the team experienced setback after setback, success seemed less tangible. Rob felt it was time to move on. But he didn't know what the next step should be. I decided to... Um, like really take a step back and, and take a look at my life. And I'm going to, I started a spreadsheet called Life Examined. And in there, I put every possession I had and everything I was spending money on and every where every second of my time was going. You know, I stopped doing every activity I thought wasn't progressing towards my goal of like starting a company and raising money. I mean, stop reading the news. That was a big one. Deleted social media. Stopped reading fiction. You know, when only nonfiction, only textbooks. And, and then money was a big one. I looked at my bank statement. I was like, I buy stuff all the time. I need to stop doing that. 
So I stopped spending money on everything. And um, I realized that the only two things I couldn't stop spending money on were food and rent. How hard is it going to be to stop eating? And so I was like, well, let me break the problem down. You know, there's only, you know, what's in ramen, really? And it's not that great. <laughs> you know, it's missing a lot of stuff. So I was like, not only can do I think I can spend less money or no money on food, um, maybe I can eat better, which I'm not eating very well. And so then I, I just thought, well, I remember growing those tomatoes. And I was like, those things just came out of the ground. I didn't put any dollars in there. And I thought, okay, well, you know, food is made from what? Water, air, sunlight, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, some energy. All these inputs are free. You know, why couldn't I have food for free? And so I had this, you know, this kind of a vision for this machine. And what would come out of this machine is this like nutritious white liquid that would have everything that the body would need. And I just got really obsessed with this idea and started reading about, you know, uh, crop science and nutritional biochemistry and food processing and preservation and all this. And I, I thought, you know, like there's a finite list of stuff that the body lives on. And, you know, I was really interested in, you know, what would like minimum viable food or like elemental food really look like. And also seemed really interesting because at the time there's um, there was this huge movement of like um, organic. You need to buy like all only like fresh produce and like anything else is bad and we can't really explain why but we just know it is because <laughs> there's sugar in there or something and i'm like well there's no reason you couldn't make a packaged food with more vitamin a and less sugar um and it just seemed like people were missing something it seemed like oh you could have a packaged food product that would be very nutritious there's no reason you couldn't and if you did have it that way then it becomes more of an engineering problem than like shipping like spoiling produce around and maybe you could like make really cheap very nutritious food and i was living in the tenderloin in san francisco and i'm like i need this and like a lot of people i see on the street right now really need this and a lot of my founder friends really need this i'm gonna make this you started this idea with like i just want to spend less money on groceries at what point did you realize this is like a business when i realized that you kind of have to spend money on groceries you kind of have to spend money on food. And I've hated going to a grocery store. And everyone I knew hated going to the grocery store. And most days I didn't want to cook or didn't have time to cook. And everyone I knew said the same thing. Never one to retreat from a challenge, Rob started testing different processed and genetically modified food ingredients on himself. This seemed to be in direct contrast to a growing trend that was returning to organic foods. But again... Rob is someone that follows his own vision. So he immersed himself in the research process and found the integral ingredients for his meal substitute. I got quotes from like ADM and Cargill and Continental Grain and like soybean processors and found out that a lot of these ingredients at like bulk scale powder is like pretty cheap. And I, I thought like, oh, there's no reason you couldn't make like a really nutritious processed food product. I mean, everyone's just afraid of processed food. They don't even really know why. So I, yes, I contacted these companies and I started ordering samples and a lot of them were free. And I started to get like a kilo of that or a hundred grams of that, or this came from Alibaba or this, this came from Amazon. I mean, I, I probably, you know, spent like a few hundred dollars making the first couple versions of Soylent. And the first version actually tasted pretty good. Texture was kind of off and then I felt great. And then I kind of had like a crash and I was like, okay, maybe the sugars are too fast. And so I started rejiggering the sugars. Then I started redoing the proteins. And then I realized that like my iron source wasn't really bioavailable. 
I kind of saw my body as my development board and started testing on it. And, uh, you know, some scary stuff would happen. Like one, well, I had like really bad heart palpitations one day when like the, I had the potassium way off. I kind of eventually landed on something that like tasted pretty okay. And, you know, drinking it as my sole source of nutrition, I actually started to feel really good. Like I had more energy. I was like started, um, you know, running and working out more. And like my skin started to feel better and I was sleeping better. And I was like, not only can I like survive on this, I'm, I'm feeling like pretty good. Rob felt he wasn't just surviving on Soylent. He was thriving. He knew he was on the cusp of something great, but this idea was a total diversion from what Rob and the team had been working on. They were great at making tech products. Did it really make sense to just up and switch to food? At first, they thought it was a bad idea. They were like, no one's going to drink this slurry. They just, they just thought it was weird, or they thought that doing another internet company was a better idea. And they're like, everyone's funding like internet companies. And you know, I started talking about you know, what an important idea this is, and how like, we really need more science and technology in food, and we can make better foods this way. And this is a great product, and I really like this. Uh, and it was a really good idea. And so I put a lot of work into this blog post and like, edited it a lot. I remember I like, had stayed up all night editing it and like it was ready to go and then I like hit publish and then I just like fell asleep right away and then when I woke up my um, server had crashed like hundreds of thousands of people were, were, were reading it it went viral and I like had so much trouble keeping it up and there was this like, huge discourse that it, it had caused like a lot of people were going back and forth like this is a terrible idea this is a great idea like you could never live on this or like this is what only what we should live on um, so I kept writing about it and like I, I stayed on it and people kept reading that thousands of people were like commenting on my blog post and so I'm like okay I'm going to set up like a forum for these people and so I did that I set up like this discourse site and then a, a subreddit popped up and thousands of people started joining that and, and talking about Soylent on this subreddit you know, without me really having to do anything. And so when we launched the Kickstarter, the crowdfunder, um, the, you know, product wasn't really up to my standards yet. And there's a whole process, like you need to make sure that all the ingredients you're using are available at scale. You need to make sure that things process in like an industrial fashion. And you also need to worry about like the packaging and the branding and the master case. And the, you need to get your nutrition facts panel reviewed and you need to figure out your, your warehouse and logistics situation. You need to launch an e-commerce site. And so there's a ton of work to do to actually start shipping publicly. And so while that was was going on i ran this like beta program where i recruited a few people that had read my blog who were like in san francisco and i like mixed them up like beta versions in these ziploc bags and like took bart to them and like hand delivered them we would charge them like a few dollars per bag they they really liked it and they kept asking for more and so i kept on delivering more and taking cash and then i was like okay well i need to scale this you know i need to sell this online so we launched on crowdfunder and um, we had all this media attention at the time and so a ton of people went to the site and they started pre-ordering soylent and we got millions of dollars at the time i was just like so convinced it was a great idea that was really going to go somewhere i wasn't even that surprised sounds like some hubris but like i, I really believed in it and i was like of course we wouldn't give this of course we want this product like it's a great product but those are like orders you know those are not donations so i was like all right well, now we have to figure out how to make food products at scale and like I didn't know how to do that and so started asking around and trying to recruit advisors and yeah so we eventually got it made and you know we way overpaid but we you know made enough and then it took way longer than we thought but you know other than that the warehouse was great and then you know by the time we were shipping publicly we were in like a certified clean proper co-packing facility so yeah we, we we got to market and people started ordering it and we started shipping it and those people liked it and they started reordering and then I started going into like product improvement mode and just kept on improving it and wanting to make it better and better and people seemed to like those improvements. Rob started to transition from a scrappy program to a leader. He really likes experimentation and likes being in the trenches and building. But at a certain point, he had to take on the role of CEO and manage culture and people. 
Part of that culture creation is knowing where to build that culture. Rob decided to move to L.A. I mean, it did seem like if we're going to have a consumer product, L.A. seemed like a better testbed for that and just a bigger market overall and this great kind of like logistics manufacturing hub and great schools, you know, great founders, great manufacturing infrastructure. And also it seemed like people weren't quite as quick to change jobs. And, you know, if I, if I wanted to build a culture, like I wanted people to stay at my company, I felt like in San Francisco, people were moving around a lot. Everything was so much more expensive long-term. You know, I knew that, you know, I don't want to burn out. I've seen people do that. And I'm like, look, what I want to build is going to take a really, really long time. And I don't want to be really stressed and have people in the office until midnight and, you know, worry about paying their rent or like never being able to afford a house or like have difficulty raising a family. It just seemed like San Francisco just seemed like pretty unsustainable for what I wanted to build. So I moved into a house in North Hollywood and we all lived there and also worked there. And so people were like commuting to the house and we had pallets of like powder being delivered, like, like a lift gate and a forklift, like to our garage. And the neighbors thought we were crazy. I you know I was like full blown development mode and like had this vision of like turning the powder into a drink. And people told me there's no way that's ever going to happen. Drinks are way too expensive. We just have this great powder business. And then, you know, we, we eventually outgrew the house and got an office downtown. We found this uh, pretty cheap place on Broadway. You know, at that point, let's see, we had like we had these happy customers that were reordering and we had all this money from crowdfunding and like documentaries being made about us in the press, like all the time in this thriving Reddit community. And we had great margins. And then I'm like, I'm going to go raise money. And everyone was like, you're crazy. I must've done like 40 VC meetings. And they're like, we're a software shop. Like we only invest in apps. You know, if we have, if you had a SaaS company, we'd love to talk to you. Like no one on our team really understands drinks. Are you like an e-commerce company? Are you a beverage company? I went to New York. I went to San Francisco. I went to LA. I went to Atlanta. I went to Texas. Just like trying to meet with all these investors and just so many no's. I mean, it, it still felt like forward progress, but you know, one thing's are going to coach you on and anyone will is that you're going to hear no a lot and just don't take it personally. Actually, the community really made things happen because there's this venture fund in, in New York I finally got a meeting with and there's this one analyst at the fund who was just a huge fan of Soylent because he was on Reddit and all the partners were like what on earth is this product and he was like no you guys need to pay attention like look at the community behind this clearly people really love this product and they were like look we mostly invest in media but we think this you know is such a great idea and we really love the online following you've built so we're going to invest it was so refreshing because all these partners had kind of given me the runaround or like rescheduled the meeting a bunch of times or like asked not great questions or like said they're going to follow up and never did and then i sat down with this guy chris dixon at andreessen horowitz and he was like wearing a t-shirt seemed like a very smart but very nice person and he just tried the product and he was like yeah i drink this this is a cool idea let me take it to the partners and he did and they invested like after just like banging my head against a wall for all this time and i finally got a yes Once Soylent had enough investment, the company started expanding at a crazy rate, leaving behind their scrappy beginnings. Rob had grown a really healthy company. People loved their jobs. People loved working there. It seemed that this period of positivity could last forever, but it didn't last. You know, we were shipping product, but we, we had working capital needs and we had payroll and we had a marketing expenses and I had just hadn't been able to make the company profitable, but it was a growth company and that's the type of things that investors want to invest in. And so I eventually did get a Series A offer from Andreessen. And like everything takes a while. I mean, we were just so low on cash so many times. Like I never told anyone this, but we had like a happy hour the night before we were supposed to close. And this thing, it's the thing where like everything's signed and like we're going to be fine and everyone's feeling good and we're celebrating, but the wire hasn't hit yet. And I'm like, you just say you still have to hit send guys. Like, <laughs> 
I'm kind of running. I'm kind of cutting it close, which is like kind of my fault, but still, like I really hope the wire hits. And we had this happy hour that night, and I was like drinking water. And like, <laughs> you know, like, like, are you sure you need another beer? Maybe you should get like a PBR. You don't need that craft beer. <laughs> and I remember like putting the company card down for the happy hour, and I think there was like maybe eight hundred dollars in the account or something, and just hoping like it doesn't get declined, but it went through. <laughs> and then the next day, twenty million dollars hit. You went from eight hundred to twenty million. That was pre-happy hour expense. I think we went from like two hundred to twenty million. <laughs> With a new round of investment, Rob had the perfect opportunity to grow, but he had to reflect on a few important questions. What is our company? What do we make? It seems like a simple question, but it's an important question to get right. And Rob spent a lot of time making sure he got it right. Classic business, tough decision. Like, do we focus on our core? Do we expand? What is the core? And so I thought that, you know, maybe there is a place to, you know, make our customers happier and have new customers if we had a bar product. And then when I looked at the economics of it, it seemed like, well, this is also like less technically complex and less expensive to manufacture than a drink. And so it might be a nice add-on. So I just figured, you know what, let's test it. Let's launch it. Let's see what happens. So we put this algae flower in the bar, which was a largely untested ingredient, and we started shipping it to people. And like we, we tested internally and we tested it with a bunch of people and everything was fine. Soylent announced yesterday that its newest offering, a food bar that launched in August, is making people sick. Consumers recently began citing episodes of vomiting, diarrhea, and becoming violently ill after consuming the bars. The company instructed... The backlash from the bars jeopardized Soylent's image and relationship with their customers. But an even larger threat to the company's longevity was internal destabilization. You know, the company had, had really evolved and become like this big machine and like lots of professional people. And like it was way different from like the early days with, with the co-founders. And, you know, there was a really stressful period of like kind of re-architecting things. Internally, there was just a lot of disagreement. These different teams had grown and some of the teams like didn't know each other very well. And it seemed like teams were starting to develop their own cultures. And there was even like unhealthy dynamics between the teams. And there were some people that were like pretty bad for culture. And I like didn't really want to let them go, but I eventually did, and it was a really stressful period. I had this offer for the Series B, didn't end up coming through, and that put us in a really bad spot. Cash was running pretty low, and I really needed to close this deal, and like everybody was like at each other's throats and didn't know where the money was going to come from, and then randomly through the grapevine get this message that's like, oh, Larry Page is like a huge fan of Soylent and wants to meet you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> So I go to Palo Alto and I sit down with, with David Drummond and we have like a, a really fun meeting with him. And then he was like, okay, I think you should meet with Larry Page. And so I come back and just sit down and like have one of the best conversations of my whole life. After that conversation, I get a message from Google Ventures and they're like, we want you to come pitch. And I said, okay, I pitched. And then two days later, I had a term sheet wow. and closed the Series B, $50 million. Once again, everything had worked out, and this wasn't the first time. Rob survived many pivots and transitions. He went from a programmer to a blogger, to an experimenter, to a recruiter, to a CEO. His job within the company changed a lot. 
As a founder, you tend to hire away your initial responsibilities. You might start doing the programming, then you hire someone for that. Then you start doing business development and hire someone for that. Then you start recruiting and then you hire someone for that too. Soon you've hired away everything that made you such a great founder to begin with and focus on one thing, vision. But what if someone else has a better vision? I felt like my role at the company had changed a lot. You know, all these other positions had changed. Like I hired a CFO and a CMO and a COO and all these people were like really focused. And before everyone was kind of doing everything. And every time I hired one of these experienced executives, things got so much better. And I figured, okay, the writing's kind of on the wall for me. <laughs> you know, I hired this C and that C and that C and that C and the company got better every time. Maybe the logical extension of that is that there's going to be a new CEO. So it was really bittersweet. On the one hand, I thought that I left the ship in pretty good hands. And then I also felt a lot of letting go, which is really hard. I think this was the toughest transition of all. Rob built this company from the ground up, and now he had to let it go. But he still wants to make strides in bioengineering. He hasn't stopped. After stepping down from Soylent, Rob returned to what had sparked this whole product to begin with, his passion for ambitious scientific research and pursuing new frontiers in biology. Since childhood, Rob has never been afraid of processed foods and human interference in bio. And since leaving Soylent, he has been extremely invested in the interface between food, science, and tech. I mean, my vision is that Innovations in biology are going to change the world in a bigger way than software or electronics or radios ever did. I mean, this is the ultimate frontier. We're going to understand these and engineer these on a level unprecedented in decades past. On the biotech side, there's this great company called MiniCircle, which does human genetic enhancement. And so they have a gene therapy that's actually very affordable to manufacture, which makes you stronger and makes you live longer. I think you're going to see a realm of sort of like biological enhancements instead of just medicines. So, I mean, now that we're using proteins and, and genes and biologics and even whole engineered cells and even re-engineering the cells of your own body or, you know, being able to implant devices that interface biology and, 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 and semiconductors. And so I just met with this amazing researcher, Chong Lu, and he's able to uh, use electricity to greatly improve the efficiency of nitrogen fixation. And so it could be used in a bioreactor setting to make incredibly efficient biomass, or it can be used in soil to make crops grow much more efficiently. And I think it might eventually come back to this independence or self-reliance where, you know, what if you could grow so food so efficiently, you could grow all of your own food. Despite Soylent's massive success, Rob's motive for starting and continuing the product was always a genuine interest in food and science, never profit. Piggybacking off this idea, he has some advice for you, the people listening to this podcast. I really like taking the long view, you know, and, and invest in knowledge, invest in experience. The money will find you. Go after what's interesting. I, I think some of the mistakes I made was like listening to gossip more than thinking from my gut. No matter what the world is saying, always go with your gut. And, you know, always take the high road. Like, you know, I think most people are pretty honest, hardworking people, but some people are not. And, you know, it's good to have, to be optimistic, but skeptical. And if something doesn't go your way, like, just move on. Keep moving forward. When I was interviewing Rob, I was struck by this odd theoretical line. It was the line that separated visionary from lunatic. 
Often visionaries are labeled lunatics until they achieve success. And it makes sense why. To create something, especially something new, you have to circumvent or outright oppose the existing structure. In Rob's case, he understood this early. He realized the conflict that existed between his religious upbringing and science. He stood up to authority and went against what his entire community had been telling him his whole life. The social fallout from that alone seems crazy, and I can only imagine what his family and friends had thought at the time. He took this intensity and vision to the startup world, and again, did things that seemed to defy reason. And defying reason is a good thing. If you want to be influential, you must first look at your peers. If you're doing exactly what your peers are doing, then you will become exactly like them. If you want to have influence and impact, you should be the outcast, the dreamer, the crazy one, the lunatic. And a lot of times, if you are crazy long enough with enough focus, eventually people will realize you weren't crazy. You just had vision. You saw the world not as it is, but as you wanted it to be. There's no question that Rob had vision and courage. The real question is, do you? This episode was a blast to put together, and I want everyone who was part of putting together this episode to tell you what they did. So without further ado, here's the Finding Founders team. Hi, my name is Adrian Tapia, and I was the lead producer for this episode. My name is Charlotte Isidore, and I worked on the editing and helped write the script for the voiceover. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Bowen, and I helped edit and make the voiceover script. Hi, my name is Dharma Shah, and I helped edit and add music. Hey, my name is Luke Riggin, and I edited part of this episode. My name is Sahaj, and I helped edit and find music for this podcast. My name is Maddie Boson, and I helped edit this podcast. 